Am I Cynic, the podcast with a license to inform. This is your host, Thomas Brancato. Today, I have the honor of inviting Dr. Maria Albano, somebody who's had a lot of presentations regarding uh, a number of topics and public speaker and somebody who I'm very honored to have uh, today. But without spoiling too much, I'd like to introduce Dr. Maria Albano and maybe just ask you to very briefly explain a little bit about what, you, what you're doing right now and uh, some of the past projects that you've been involved in. Hello, thank you very much for your invitation. Uh, I love being here. It is my first time uh, doing a podcast, so uh, I think it's going to be a fine experience. Uh, thank you also for the presentation and the nice words. Um, I'm a criminologist, so I deal mainly, uh, as the name says it, with crime. I focus uh, all these years mainly on terrorism, extremist violence, Starting from this point of view, um, to me, it was quite interesting to see the dynamics of uh, hate and violence that seemed to start uh, with the corona crisis. And currently, I'm part of a working group called COVID-19 Viral Violence. Uh, there are also two other colleagues, one sociologist and one anthropologist. And each one of us has looked into the phenomenon of violence uh, occurring in this period from different aspects. Uh, my main concern was interpersonal violence and violence um, perpetrated um, towards or against, I would say, targets that are related to the state and also from state actors and agencies like the police against citizens. So it's a vast subject, um, but I found it very interesting because um, the corona situation was something new. And all of a sudden, it was not just a medical emergency, but it was something that began to be translated also into the behavior of everyday people. It was a challenge to see how these behaviors showed a dynamic to violence. And again, I think, I think my first uh, interest and instinct to this situation was um, to see how all the uh, new laws and measures uh, regarding uh, you know, fighting the coronavirus would uh, influence human behavior and the relationship between state and citizen. The first part of what I'd like to talk about actually related to the last episode of this podcast uh, regarding to Afghanistan. And uh, I say this because your work uh, frequently touches on hate crimes, discrimination, anti-quality, and uh, mental health. Um, these are things that you look at uh, during your work quite often. And we could say marginalized groups, more broadly speaking, is something that you, you take a look at. And this also relates back to Afghanistan in, in many ways, specifically uh, to a leadership program that you did in February of this year called Afghans for Progressive Thinking. And since that time, of course, President Biden has announced the withdrawal of all US armed forces. Uh, I've had uh, just recently an interview with Irfan uh, Yar, an expert on Afghanistan, and we talked about a lot of things. But we didn't talk much about this, about the marginalized groups uh, within Afghanistan, and about the nature of the conflict there. So a question that I have is for you, since uh, you delivered that, that presentation, what is your view now on the background of the conflict between the tribal and 
and the political groups in Afghanistan and perhaps what you see going forwards in as far as marginalization? Well, you're touching a very deep subject and Afghanistan is an area that interests me a lot. Uh, I have been doing also mentoring uh, with, uh, with an organization that is helping Afghan girls and um, it touches a lot. My, my criminological interests and my interest uh, in terrorism, radicalization to violence. Um, I would say that, um, especially due to the recent attacks, um, any um, form of uh, hope that seemed to be built uh, now is a bit, you know, uh, we are in shaky grounds. Um, and my communication with uh, the youth of Afghanistan, what shows me is that indeed there is a lot of desperation. You mentioned mar marginalized groups. I think that the problem in Afghanistan is the underlying conflict at the presence of people who are in the extreme side of their ideology slash religion. I'm not saying that religion is a problem. I'm saying that this extreme side and interpretation uh, of, of religion and cultural norms is, is a, a danger for security. Um, and although one wants to be an optimist, um, you know, the feedback that I had uh, also during my presentation was that, yes, okay, all these uh, advice coming from the West about trying to find a common line, um, trying uh, to enforce uh, principles of mediation, again, you know, trying to find the best interest and communicating with the other side. Do they work in our environment? And of course, as a scholar and in principle, you try to find ways to uh, convince people that, yes, the principles of peace and mediation can apply. However, reality uh, often shows that this is hard to achieve. And Afghanistan is an example of how hard it is to achieve peace and how uh, certain groups are indeed using violence and are very much um, planning to continue using this violence. And, and it seems like um, the youth of Afghanistan that wants a different future, that wants a future without violence, wants a future with progress, um, do not find solutions. And of course, the outside powers, US, and generally I would say uh, the way that uh, Western countries have seeing the Afghan situation doesn't seem to help in the sense that for all this time that Western influence was in the area, it seems like, well, unfortunately, I have to say this, institutions were not built in a way that can keep, sustain, make, develop, you know, uh, a piece that will, will, will stay and stand. This is, this is what I say. Radicalization to violence is there. And my problem is that the youth that doesn't want this radicalization and wants peace doesn't seem to have a venue to pursue this way. Just to provide a bit of balance, because the last time I spoke in Afghanistan, unfortunately, a lot of the um, a lot of the discussion was uh, negative, for lack of a better word, or certainly didn't include much talk about tangible steps on how we we can improve and rebuild the great nation of Afghanistan. And so, to that end, I did want to ask you, because I know you work very closely with this, is can you point to any positive uh, steps or any any examples of where we can combat extremism and we can make 
make the future better for girls in Afghanistan and, and the youth more broadly speaking? Empowerment of women is always uh, a great step and giving opportunities. And this is something that, to be honest, I see that the West is trying uh, to help with. For example, there are scholarships, there are programs for girls uh, in Afghanistan to go study abroad. The thing is, um, how many of these girls are going to return back to Afghanistan in order to be part of this you know, changing force for the country? Because when all these problems are present there, um, the moment that you have a chance to leave this place, the moment that you have a chance to have a better future, I doubt whether you're going to return there and subject your life and your family even into the danger of, uh, you know, new bombing and losing your life. So, uh, yes, empowering women is uh, a step. We see lots of programs um, like that, uh, education for women. Um, However, uh, let's not, I mean, this is why I have lost a bit of my optimism in the sense that unless there is a way to combat also the tribes that use violence, and here it is a security, it's definitely a security issue with a strict sense, all the other uh, steps, which of course are positive, may not be that effective. Um, I know girls, I have uh, contacts in Afghanistan, girls who get educated, who will leave or leave now uh, in the United States, will they return? Should they return? I mean, someone is is thinking also about this. The role of women generally in society, the moment that we have progression and development in that area, usually also society begins to be more inclusive. On the other hand, those tribes who have all these fundamentalist ideas, the minute they see moves like this, it's when they, they decide to act more because they want to protect the status that they know. Right, and, and that's where it, the, the politics and the religious extremism gets involved in it all. What did the West do until now? I mean, let's count the years that we have all this foreign influence in Afghanistan. What is the result? Well, I think one of the things that I was speaking with Irfan Yara in Afghanistan is that after 20 years, we're talking about a country that's, you know, barely managed to get its foot on the ground in as far as its democracy, in its institutions, its democracy, and uh, a very high likelihood that we will actually be seeing the return of tribal political violence and factionalism. So 20 years afterwards, it's even worse, you might argue. Yes, and it, it means that the whole procedure and the whole plan about Afghanistan doesn't seem to be very successful at the end of the day. And, you know, measuring the results, as you put it, it's 20 years, 20 years, well, 25 years, I think we measure a generation. So 20 years is a lot of time. And I find it interesting when you mention a lot of the steps that we are taking in the West include uh, Afghani men, women, uh, younger coming to the Western countries, get an education perhaps, and then they don't want to return. This is, of course, a a challenge in in its own right in finding the, the solution to that. But for now, I find it interesting what kind of a West they will be coming to, because that West is now a very different West. Uh, Coronavirus has, of course, had a a massive impact on the world as we knew it, and uh, here in in the uh, so-called first world, so-called Western world as well. You talk a little bit about corona crime and the corona criminals, two terms that I like very much uh, from some of your recent work. And uh, I want to take a moment here just to discuss a little bit about what this means. What is a corona crime? What is a coronal criminal? And how do we police this? 
Well, the whole idea started with something that, uh, I mean, the first lesson that we teach in criminology and even criminal law is what is a crime? And yes, there is this legalistic approach that crime is whatever is prohibited by law. However, um, crime is also a social construction. And in order for the punishment of crime to have also some legitimacy inside society, this notion of crime should equal a, a very, let's say, um, antisocial behavior. And to the average person, to be honest, this antisocial behavior usually equates to violence. So let's think not as criminologists, not as experts in crime, but as the average person. Listening to the word criminal or crime, rape, homicide, uh, burglary, all these things come to mind, okay? So um, let's say administrative laws that prohibit certain kinds of behavior do not come to mind. So, for example, I will use uh, case studies from Greek reality, but I expect that uh, people can uh, relate also with examples from their own countries. So there are some administrative laws in Greece that... Uh, regard uh, how loud you can have your music uh, and there are some administrative you know punishments about that or when you are uh, parking somewhere where you should not park and of course you get a ticket and this is unlawful in the general sense but it's not a crime in the sense that we would speak about it in criminology so we know that criminal and, uh, and crime are a person who shows very intense antisocial behavior, usually violence, and crime is the equivalent behavior. And this is what the average person understands. And more or less, the criminal is the bad guy. Generalization, I know a, a, a label, I know, but this is how the average person understands it. And I think that partly uh, this relates also to, to reality. However, today with the corona crime and the corona criminal, we have a situation where people that, you know, before the corona uh, crisis would never consider that they would have any issue with the law. Definitely, they were not the target group of policemen are now in their focus. So when you have police officers running around old ladies who insist to go in church because church service is suspended, and they get fined, so they get arrested, and um, laws that, you know, they are very general and they speak about endangerment are applied. Then you see this um, new form of criminal, a new form of, of crime. And police officers were used to um, hunting down hardcore criminals, uh, violent people, and now they find themselves arguing with an old lady or arguing with the person that doesn't want to wear a mask. Uh, I think that this, this is a new reality for uh, law enforcement, and it is also a new reality for criminology. We have to see the development of crime in a new way.
As well, not only just, uh, as you mentioned, the example of perhaps of an old lady, an innocent old lady going to church, but uh, also what's certainly been the case here in the United Kingdom, but also in the United States, mass demonstrations related or unrelated to COVID-19, such as uh, the Black Lives Matter protests, but uh, many others as well. Uh, we've seen mass uh, public gatherings, sometimes quite blatantly breaking uh, the COVID-19 regulations. And we've also seen, on the other hand, the excessive use of police force. How do we address them within the framework of our existing rule of law and is it adequate? There is a, a very thin line uh, between using the force of law as we should and uh, abusing it. Um, it is generally a very sensitive issue. I do understand uh, countries and their governments and I do understand also the first phase of surprise because in the first wave of, of COVID-19, to be honest, no one knew what was going on. Uh, we didn't know the, um, the ways of transmission and the extent that a certain behavior could have um, in transmitting the virus. So a lot of um, prohibitions <laughs> came into place. And breaking them seemed to be, I mean, in the beginning, you didn't know whether uh, breaking a certain measure uh, really uh, meant transmitting the virus. Now, we have had some clear-cut COVID crimes. Like if you remember in the first phase uh, in China, there were some people who were spitting and touching the buttons of, of elevators. There were images like this with people trying to spread the virus. So yes, here you have a behavior that is antisocial and is aiming into harming someone through the virus. However, uh, in the cases that you mentioned, even when you had um, demonstrations, meetings, I don't think that the scope of the people was to spread the virus. In many cases, uh, I have seen in demonstrations, even people wearing masks or keeping distances. And I'm saying it's a sensitive case because um, there were some demonstrations that took place not because of COVID, uh, not, not against COVID measures, but because of other things that were happening in societies. And people went out to demonstrate and push their governments to take up, you know, different measures. Should we put all these on hold? Should we put democracy on hold with, should I use the word excuse? I don't like the word excuse because with excuse, we, we mean that we have another target and we just, you know, use COVID-19 as an excuse. Um, should COVID-19 serve as a reason to put all life on hold? And especially when the laws that we have been applying are laws that speak vaguely about endangerment and there doesn't seem to be a clear connection with transmission. I don't know. And I find it very interesting, uh, Maria, how many authoritarian governments around the world don't even have to ask themselves this question. I mean, for countries like the United Kingdom, Greece, United States, uh, you know, this is such an important... Do we put democracy on hold? And, and how on earth do we do that legally? Because, you know, we have very firmly entrenched systems to prevent uh, taking, uh, you know, radical measures uh, from one day to the next. And usually these are these are very controlled procedures, such as, um, you know, passing emergency uh, regulations or declaring an emergency state. Other countries like Russia and China, maybe, um, you know, they either don't have these systems in place or they, they don't really care too much about them. And their response to COVID has been... Uh, uh, you, you could even argue a, a lot quicker, if not necessarily a lot more effective. I think that's a separate question. Great point. But um, let me share here a small, not objection, but um, 
you know, generally about crime, we can say that about normal criminality, countries that have all this tough approach have lower percentages. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, yes, if you lock all people in their homes, definitely you're not going to have crime on the streets. But is it a price you want to pay? And I think that in the UK, because you mentioned UK, and for me, um, part of the problem was not measures having to do with the spread of the virus, but measures that had to do with disciplining people. Like, I never understood why in countries like Greece, the point was not whether you should exit your home or not, but sending the SMS to the competent authority and um, writing all those self-certification forms in order to be out. So if you send an SMS, the virus doesn't uh, transmit, but you know, uh, if you don't send it, it transmits. These things that had to do with certain ways that the measures were enforced, I think this was a problem, and it was in other countries too. While in the UK, um, I think that um, although, yes, there was a discussion about the measures, and Correct me if I'm wrong, uh, there were also a prominent figures like Lord Sumption that raised objections about the whole situation. I believe that people had more of a say and they were more um, able to, at least this was my, my, my perception, but please correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, they were more um, allowed to exercise their freedoms during this period. I would certainly agree with you on that one. I think... A generalization that can be made is that it took a longest time for uh, the established Western democracies to adapt uh, to the challenge. But now, you know, one year into this, we can clearly see that, you know, with the vaccine rollouts in particular, um, we're catching up quickly and uh, making a lot more progress. But I do think that compared with other regimes like China was able to pretty much isolate and quarantine large cities like Wuhan uh, very quickly on. However, I'm not sure how they're doing now. I haven't read the latest reports. I'm not sure if I trust the latest reports coming from China because a lot of the official communication seems to suggest that uh, the crisis is over in China. But uh, I don't know if this if this is true. Um, what I can say, though, is that in the United Kingdom's case, it has taken it was an awkward process. Um, to get everything legally, socially and policing wise. Now, especially, is a very weird time because, you know, we've come pre-vaccine from a time in which it was common in the news to be corona shaming. And uh, you'd have, you know, a, a university student having a party at, and, and being fined uh, large, you know, up to £10,000. Um, and that being displayed on the news and there was a great... There were, you know, social case, There was a social demonstration made of it on the on the news channels, and uh, I haven't heard much of that lately on the news. I think now, as we're nearing a higher threshold of the population being uh, vaccinated, it's you know suddenly less uh, worrying uh, that uh, people are perhaps infringing these rules. Um, although um, I couldn't say for certain. People showed their behavior and they showed uh, who they are during this period. I mean, uh, you mentioned Corona parties and yes, people showed, some people showed how much they have disregard of public health and of the health of others. I mean, they did not think of any consequence uh, starting from their behavior. And yes, this was also evident in other countries. Other people showed this overzealous, let's say, behavior of uh, denouncing others to the authorities. A lot of issues uh, to press. And, you know, 
about this denouncement and this uh, zealous behavior, it amazes me that, uh, well, we know that domestic violence, for example, is something that troubles societies. Well, in my career, I have never seen this zealous behavior to denounce your neighbor for beating up his wife, but I, I saw this zeal and, you know, denouncing your neighbor because you thought he was or she was breaking the corona measures. Uh, this has been a period that definitely we have seen attitudes that we're, go we're going to discuss about this for, for years, I believe, in criminology. Very interesting. I think as well, what we have seen through COVID-19 is that this implications for racial and social discrimination aren't just something that happens far away in the third world, like Afghanistan that we've mentioned before, but something that's very close to home. Uh, sorry, but because you mentioned it, I'm really curious at one point to see whether researchers can see how those societies dealt with COVID-19, not from a legal point of view, inside the society, and how did our societies dealt with it? Because this would be quite interesting to see, regardless of other problems, whether social bonds uh, in, in such, let's say, more traditional societies uh, may have worked better or worse for, for handling the corona crisis. What's been, in your opinion, have you seen any evidence or response to COVID-19 spilling also into racial and social discrimination? Has this happened here? Well, in Europe, there have been cases, there have been uh, international human rights organizations that have raised concerns, for example, about how policing could be uh, more targeting people like Roma or refugees. Um, generally foreigners. Definitely, uh, I think that this was quite evident even in the first phase of uh, COVID-19 that uh, people of Asian heritage or Asian looking were uh, targeted and they were victims of crime, crime that was related to hate. And I think this had to do again with the narrative of fighting COVID-19, the invisible enemy and, you know, people don't like invisible things. They like very visible targets. And all this invisible would become visible and very visible to the scapegoat that would be the Asian-looking person that is carrying the virus. Let's not forget that in the beginning, there were people who were talking about the Chinese virus. Let's not forget that. It even got a political um, cue. Uh, so I would say that definitely there was this racial aspect uh, the negative uh, aspect and, and violence. Another group, of course, large group that uh, has seen the effects of COVID-19 in a, in a negative way is was women. And uh, this is something that you've spoken about. But I, I've got uh, just a quote here that uh, when I was doing research for our interview, made me raise my eyes because I never knew uh, that we were talking about something as large as this. But uh, I'll just read it out to you. The World Health Organization reports that one in three women globally are subjected to violence and younger women are more at risk. One in three. Violence against women is endemic in every country and culture, causing harm to millions of women and their families and has been exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. This was said by Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, uh, the Director General of The WHO. Now, this is uh, very important to analyze from very d many different angles, but specifically today I want to be talking about uh, how it relates to COVID-19, the last part of, of this quote. And this is something I don't fully understand, and I'm hoping maybe you can shed a bit of light, is what exactly is the link between a pandemic 
or say financial hardship, natural disasters and domestic abuse? Well, let's start with saying that um, men don't beat up their wives because of COVID-19. So uh, the relationship between the pandemic and the phenomenon that you just mentioned is that the pandemic created very fertile um, ground for this behavior to be to be carried out more often and especially for women not to be able to find protection. Very simple things, okay? Um, how can you leave your home when there is a curfew? How can you leave your home when you're afraid that if you take your children and leave home, you don't have anywhere to go and this anywhere is a place that is uh, COVID-free and you know uh, safe uh, in order for you and your children not to contract uh, the virus. So generally we have a problem with women having uh, difficulty to get out of home when they are abused. Now imagine this being reinforced when you're in a COVID situation. Women who have the dilemma stay at home and die probably because of uh, you know being beaten up or uh, live with my children and contract the virus and die or endanger my children because I will expose them to that danger. So let's get uh, I mean this first situation. The second one, women who don't have the possibility to communicate with others and this doesn't doesn't mean just that they will not have moral, psychological support of their friends or their families who will see them, who will see the bruise in their eyes, who will understand that something is going on, but they will not have also this support at court because they will not have witnesses. We know in uh, domestic abuse cases, now that we have witnesses, friends against, again, or relatives who will come in court and say, yes, I saw her with a bruised eye. Yes, I saw her with bruises over her body or any other sign of of uh, of hurt when these women you know for for a very big periods for months didn't have any communication with the outside world how could they show these signs how could they communicate even with phone or you know zoom and other ways when uh, they are at the same home with their abuser who could have taken their phone or they could not phone and communicate in the presence of their abuser so there was this Practical, I would say, aspects that authorities in many countries did not think of in the beginning. The chance of women to go out and, and reach for help and also reach for legal help and assistance. And in many cases, uh, in countries, uh, courts did not operate the same um, speed and in the same way that they operated in pre-COVID circumstances. So a lot of procedures were put on hold. Women did not have free access to lawyer because generally meeting outside home was prohibited and there were a lot of obstacles. Not being able to have legal assistance is also a problem when you want to denounce your abuser and want to have the best strategy to combat this phenomenon, to save your life and uh, also guard your children. These were issues that, um, yes, made, made domestic abuse more easy. I don't know if it is more often because generally with the statistics and domestic abuse, we have problems. We have dark number. We don't know how large dark number can be. And dark number means the cases that are not denounced for many reasons. I think that one of the positive things is that because of quotes like the ones uh, you mentioned, people started to think more about domestic abuse. 
And I think it's a, an incredibly important thing to be talking about and be thinking about. And that's why I, I want to give you the platform today to, to speak about this. Will we be thinking about it after COVID-19? This is a question that uh, bothers me. And also some of the positions that I have seen, and unfortunately, even from people who are in the spotlight, um, who actually connected domestic abuse with, with being frustrated from the situation of the measures. So it's like men are frustrated because they had to stay at home and they beat up their wives. And it doesn't work this way. <laughs> or advice like uh, take a walk or even break the measures uh, if it will help you not to beat up your wife. So uh, it's like the solution uh, to domestic abuse is a man taking a walk. It's simplistic. And that concludes the first part of my interview with Dr. Maria Alvanu on the subject of the well-being of women in Afghanistan during the pandemic, as well as corona crimes and criminals. Stay tuned for the second part, where we discuss these matters further. And I hope you'll stay with us for the next episodes that we've got planned. Please remember to follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube and more. And of course, to check out our website for the latest episodes. Thank you so much and have a great day.